Hello, and welcome to Modern American Diplomacy, a podcast exploring the lives and contributions of America's most accomplished career diplomats. I'm your host, Jeremy Beer, recording in Washington, D.C. Today, we're joined by Ambassador Steve Mull, one of the most distinguished diplomats in modern American history. Ambassador Mull served with distinction for over 36 years, including assignments as the U.S. Ambassador to Poland, U.S. Ambassador to Lithuania, Executive Secretary of the State Department, and Acting Undersecretary for Political Affairs. Ambassador Mull holds the rank of Career Ambassador, the highest rank in the United States Foreign Service. Ambassador Mull, welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Jeremy. Great to be with you. Sir, thanks again for taking the time to join us today. Let's start at the beginning of your career. You were born and raised in Reading, Pennsylvania, which is about an hour outside of Philadelphia. You went to Georgetown School of Foreign Service and graduated with a degree in international politics in 1980. And then you joined the Foreign Service in March of 1982, just a few years out of undergrad. Mm -hmm. What was it like joining the Foreign Service at such a young age? Did you find any advantages or disadvantages to being so young as you worked your way through the service? Well, it was simultaneously exciting and terrifying. Up until that (laughs) point, I had never been outside of the United States. I didn't even have a passport. The first passport I got in my life was the diplomatic passport. I got when I joined the A100 course, and I didn't have a lot of life experience. I was 23 years old. All of my colleagues in the first embassy I worked in in the Bahamas were much older, except for the Marine security guards. So I really had the most in common with the Marines. Salaries weren't that great because I hadn't had a lot of work experience. I was hired as an FS6, and my starting salary was just under $18,000 a year, which was kind of hard. So that was where the terrifying part came in. And just not really knowing how life overseas worked, what it was like to live in a foreign country and work there. I was single when I joined. I didn't have a lot of family obligations. And so I was able to focus a lot on career development and doing my job. And certainly when you're younger, you tend to be a lot more flexible. And flexibility is definitely a characteristic you need for success in the Foreign Service. I was the youngest member of my A100 class. And so they sent me to the place that was absolutely closest to the United States (laughs) there in the Bahamas. When it was announced I was going there, all of my classmates broke out into applause. I had this instant image of palm trees and pina coladas and island life. But in fact, it was nice living in the Bahamas, but it wasn't that easy either. In the consular section, I spent my time working in the visa section most of the time, but it was a very small embassy there. We had duty rotation of five officers. And so every five weeks, I had to spend a week on duty, on call. And that was, I never basically did anything but work during those weeks because in the Bahamas, an American dies on average once a week back then. Either they're eaten by a shark or murdered in robberies or they're elderly people who die on cruises. So it was very demanding for a 23 or 24 year old, but it gave me a lot of great stories. So that's some good detail for all of our junior officers. That's what they can look forward to on their first tour. Consular (laughs) jobs give you the absolute best stories. so. (laughs) So, sir, after the excitement of the Bahamas... You're sent to Poland. Mm -hmm. I believe that was a political consular rotation. Mm -hmm. And 
while you're there, your political reporting on the Democratic opposition in Poland was being read by a number of pretty senior level folks back in Washington. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about Poland in the early 80s and what you would have said at that time if somebody had told you that you'd one day be the U.S. ambassador to Poland. Yeah, that was really exciting to be in Poland. This was right after the Solidarity Movement. The Democratic opposition had moved to the fore in the early 1980s, and then they were viciously repressed through the imposition of martial law in 1981. And I got there a few years later, and my job in the political section was to basically try to understand, would this movement come back? Were they completely eliminated from Polish life? Were they still organized? Did they have any kind of remaining political popularity? So I got to meet all of these heroes of the democratic opposition, those that weren't in jail, because more senior officers in the embassy couldn't regularly meet with leaders of the opposition mm. without risk being thrown out. So as the junior guy in the political section, it was my job to keep contact with them, to pass messages back and forth. So it was very exciting. I loved Poland. It was such an interesting place to work. I really admired so many of the people that I met there. I learned this incredibly difficult language through a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. I thought, I'll never, ever get to speak it again. But in fact, three years later, Poland became a democratic country, and I was able to go back as political counselor in the mid-90s and get to know all of the people who were now running the place. Before they were running from the police, a few years later, they were running the country. And it was pretty exciting and one of the full circles in life that you never really expect that you're going to have. So after Poland, you are assigned to apartheid South Africa. So pretty mm -hmm. different part of the world, different set of issues. But again, as a political officer, and while in South Africa, you were reporting on that country's transition to democracy. And your reporting there won you the State Department's top prize for political reporting. Ambassador Perkins, celebrating your performance, compared you to a lot of other officers with whom he'd worked and said too many officers, even then in 1987, would just work in and around the embassy and they would rely too heavily on local and international media, whereas you were going out into these townships in the Eastern Cape and staying for weeks do you think that sort of political reporting is still possible? And is it something that the department needs to double down on and do more of instead of doing less of? Jeremy, you've hit on, I think, one of the biggest challenges facing political officers, certainly in the last 20 years, where terrorism has become such a yeah. concern for good reason, the safety of our diplomatic missions overseas. It's become a lot harder to keep yourself secure and to go out into these places where you are going to be at risk. Mm. I think that if my time in South Africa had been 20 years later, I frankly don't know if the ambassador or the other leadership in the embassy would have been as comfortable because I never had security people with me. I was pretty much on my own mm -hmm. traveling around the country. And it's harder and harder to do that these days, but it's not impossible. Going to South Africa, it was actually a difficult decision for me. And this is something that every Foreign Service officer runs into sooner or later in her or his career. But I completely thought that the U.S. policy towards South Africa during the Reagan administration at the time was completely on the wrong track. The Reagan administration mm -hmm. tended to view the apartheid issue in South Africa through the lens 
of the Cold War. And it's true. The Black Democratic Movement, the Black Nationalist Movement, in fact, got a lot of support, including arms, from the then Soviet Union. There was another faction that got support from China. So the Reagan administration viewed this battle as a battle between freedom and communism for the future of South Africa and was not particularly supportive of moving towards democracy in South Africa, even as it was very strongly in support of democracy in Eastern Europe. So it was a bit of a moral dilemma about whether to do the job. But in the end, I decided to do it because I knew from who my boss would be and from Washington, they were very eager to find out more about what the black opposition was thinking about the future of South Africa. What policies were they in favor of? And Hmm. they seemed genuinely interested in getting a better handle on what was happening inside South Africa. So although I doubt at the beginning, it was a really rewarding place to be. And then just before I left, our policy of growing U.S. support for democratization helped result in the release of Nelson Mandela and the unbanning of the ANC. And our ambassador took me to meet Nelson Mandela the day after he got out of prison Hmm. when Mandela met with the diplomatic corps. So it was just such a tremendous thing. I'll never forget getting to meet this larger-than-life person on the day after he got out of jail. It was a really great way to end my assignment there. Hmm. That's remarkable. So, sir, after South Africa, you returned to the department. And you work as the deputy director in the operations center. And that was the first of a number of tours on the seventh floor, including a stint as a deputy executive secretary. And as we discussed, ultimately, as the executive secretary, as the executive secretary, you dealt with Fukushima, with WikiLeaks, the Arab Spring, among a number of other issues. What was it like working on the seventh floor in those different roles? And how did that work differ from working elsewhere in the building? I loved it. It's definitely not for everyone. But at the same time, I would advise every single foreign service officer to have at least one tour on the seventh floor because it gives you Mm -hmm. such great skills and gives you a good foundation to serve at much higher levels. So it's a really important experience to have. What I loved about it was the unpredictable nature. You worked as a senior watch officer. You know what it's like. You never know when you come in to work what you're going to be dealing with that day. I remember my very first day as a senior watch officer in the ops center was the day that Iraq had invaded Kuwait in 1990. And I had literally never, ever worked in the State Department. (laughs) I spent my first three tours overseas And I remember there was just a frantic (laughs) tumult going on inside the operations center, and I was being trained. And the person who was training me said, get P on the phone right now. Like, P? What what is that? What are you talking about? I don't know who you mean. And so I left my first shift just wanting to cry that I was going to be a total failure. But at the same time, that first shift, Then Secretary Baker needed to call the Soviet foreign minister, Edward Shevardnadze, to start figuring out what were we going to be doing with the Soviet Union to counteract this invasion of Kuwait. And the head guy on the shift pointed at me and said, get on the phone, you're taking notes. And so I picked up the phone and then took notes on this conversation between Secretary Baker and Foreign Minister Shevardnadze laying out 
what the U.S. and Soviet Union would be able to do together in the middle of this crisis. And it was just an incredibly exciting experience to be right there as history was being made. And it was such a good introduction to what life on the seventh floor is like. You get real-time crisis management. You get really penetrating insight (laughs) into the sausage-making that often foreign policy is and all the different factors that drive foreign policy decisions, how the interagency process works. It's by far not just the State Department. All of the national security agencies play an important role, figuring out the role of intelligence in feeding that into foreign policy reporting. And it also gives you a lot of lessons. You see embassies or ambassadors or other foreign service officers who do really well, and you see those who struggle and don't do so well. And it's a great experience to learn if you want to succeed, it gives you plenty of examples of what to do and then also what not to do if you want to succeed. And then you get great personal networks. The people I met in jobs on the seventh floor are people I stayed in contact for my entire career, including political appointees that you get to know working in those jobs, like Secretary Clinton, whom I still see from time to time. It's just wonderful to be able to meet and maintain contact with such interesting and incredible people. And it also teaches you about foreign policy issues that you otherwise would never know. And you have to get smart on them very quickly from time to time. So all in all, it's a terrific experience working in those jobs. Hmm. So that's a fantastic advertisement. The executive secretary of recruitment cable just went out. And I think that you just (laughs) amplified the message more (laughs) effectively than they ever could have. That was great. So you do a stint as a director in EUR. And then you do that stint as a dep exec sec. And then you get your first job as a DCM, a deputy chief of mission, at a pretty sizable embassy, our embassy in Jakarta, Indonesia. And up until that point, most of your experience had been either in Washington or Europe. You had a WHA tour and one in AF, which we discussed. But for that first DCM job, you go to Jakarta. That's a 1,500-person embassy in a part of the world in which you didn't have much experience and where our people and our interests were facing some pretty serious challenges, including political instability, but also a significant terrorist threat. At the end of your three-year tour there, you win the Baker Wilkins Award for Outstanding Deputy Chief of Mission. Tell us how you went about managing that first big embassy and how you did so so successfully under such challenging circumstances, including the Bali bombings, given that it was your first embassy. I was originally attracted to go there because throughout my career when working overseas, I'd always been extremely interested in countries undergoing transitions to democracy, like Poland, like South Africa. Mm -hmm. And a year or two before I bid on the job to be DCM in Jakarta, Indonesia started its own transition to democracy with the demise of the Suharto administration. He had been pretty much a dictator in Indonesia for 30 years. And I thought it was just such an exciting opportunity to get to know a different part of the world and to see how democracies could transition in Southeast Asia and compare them to my experiences in Africa and Europe. So intellectually, I just found it to be a really exciting and interesting challenge. (laughs) On the ground, it was actually a pretty hairy place to work. As you mentioned, it was a big place. We had about 15 U.S. government agencies there, $400 million USAID development assistance program there. And it was just... (laughs) 
<laughs> nonstop chaos. <laughs> the new rulers of Indonesia, they were wonderful people. They had strong democratic instincts, democratic values, very moderate in their outlook, and they really wanted to take Indonesia in the right direction. But because they had spent most of their political careers running from Suharto's police or in jail or under some kind of detention, they had no experience with governing one of the largest countries in the world. It's the fourth <laughs> most populous country in the world. It spans one-eighth of the world's circumference, and it's 700 inhabited islands with all sorts of different religions, predominantly Muslim, of course, but other religions and other ethnic groups. So it was a very difficult place to govern. And I just thought it would be interesting and would help me grow as an officer and also to experience history in the making. My experience working on the seventh floor and managing various crises was enormously helpful to me because really we had an emergency action committee meeting that sometimes met every day for weeks at a time. We had serious terrorist threats, particularly after 9-11. Being in Jakarta for 9-11 was just the searing experience. I remember I got home that night, it was 12 hours away, and turned on the news and saw the plane hit one of the Twin Towers and immediately knew that this was going to have huge implications. And in fact, the next day, hundreds of Indonesians showed up with flowers and candles. It was very moving. And the day after that, a political opportunist thought, oh, this could be a political opportunity for Islamist parties who organized the massive demonstration saying America is going to go to war with Islam. We must stop them. And so two days after 9-11, we had an angry crowd of 20,000 people outside the embassy throwing Molotov cocktails. And it was just this bizarre, jarring experience. And then for months afterward, we had grenades being thrown through windows every day. There were lots of intelligence reports about new plots against the embassy. And then we ended up having to send people home for a while. But then the following year, there was another massive terrorist attack in Bali, the first Bali bombing in October 2002. We had to send about three quarters of our embassy staff and all of our families back to the States because it just didn't feel safe there. So it was hard, but I learned so much about, first of all, operating in a different culture. People look at the world differently in Southeast Asia and interact differently. And I just learned, I think I grew a lot as a diplomat in trying to persuade foreign partners to work with us on things that weren't so easy to work on. It was a good experience in that respect. And I learned a lot about working together as a team, the important role of intelligence, the important role of our military partners, the role of U.S. development assistance. It was really a whole of government effort in Indonesia, and it was really exciting to be a part of it. Well, you did a fantastic job, and partly as a result of your success there, you are nominated to be the U.S. ambassador to Lithuania and confirmed. So you head off to Vilnius to oversee efforts to bring that country into NATO. And we discussed earlier Then after Lithuania, you serve as the U.S. ambassador to Poland. And while there, you play a pretty key role expanding U.S.-Polish military cooperation also within NATO. Outside of the meat and potatoes of diplomacy, country team meetings, meetings with foreign ministers, you were one of the first ambassadors to hire 
a social media coordinator, and you were also a pretty vocal advocate of engaging with the local population in both of those countries through platforms like Twitter and Facebook. And this was before that sort of thing was common. You did things like riding in an F-16 in Poland and going out for beers with locals who engaged with the embassy on social media. As an ambassador, why did you see that sort of engagement as important? In other words, why is that public diplomacy worth doing? Well, in my experience working, especially in more recent years, once you get to the level of ambassador, I think effective public diplomacy is at least half of what you need to be doing to be a successful ambassador. And that's especially true if you're working in a democratic country where public opinion is so important in shaping what the government's policy turns out to be. So when I got to Poland, for example, in 2012, for various reasons, the U.S. popularity in public opinion polling, U.S. approval ratings were at the 37% level which I found unbelievable. When I've been there in the 90s, we were up in the 80 to 90% approval rating. So it was clear I had a lot of work to do to change public attitudes about the United States. And to me, I wasn't particularly comfortable or experienced in using social media, but I picked it up, did the best I could. I opened a Twitter account and I started using it just in Polish because I thought it was important to communicate in Polish. And I spoke it from previous assignments. And I remember I'd just been in Poland for about three or four weeks. And I got up one morning and turned on the Polish version of Morning Joe, the morning <laughs> news show. And so I went about my business. I'm in the bath and I looked out the window and it had snowed overnight. It was the first snow of the winter. I thought, oh, this is beautiful. So I took a picture of my snowy backyard and tweeted it out saying, oh, isn't it beautiful to be here for Poland's first snowfall of the year. And then back in the bathroom, start shaving. And I hear the news in the background. Oh, and we're hearing from our new U.S. ambassador. And I'm sure I didn't hear that right. And I go running out of the bathroom. And there on the TV screen on Polish national TV is the backyard that I had just photographed. Huh. And it just struck me dramatically. Wow, I can communicate to a Polish national TV audience in a second if I want to. And in that moment, it just all of a sudden became very clear to me what a powerful tool this would be. So it's a fun part of the job, but it's also very effective in terms of building support for the U.S. image. And by the time I left Poland, we had moved up from 37% approval to about 80% approval. And not just because of me, there are a lot of other reasons as well. But it's fun doing public diplomacy, and it's really effective also. So, sir, in 2008, you led our Political Military Affairs Bureau back in Washington, as well as our Arms Control Bureau, and you completed your stint as the Executive Secretary. And then you started working as a senior advisor to Ambassador Burns, who at that time was P, the Undersecretary for Political Affairs. And while you're working with Ambassador Burns, you led negotiations on a range of U.S. national security issues, including U.S. diplomatic efforts on Iran. In that job, you helped design the Security Council resolution, which imposed nuclear-related sanctions on Iran. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to 2015. The Iran deal that we all now know has been negotiated, but now needs to be implemented. And it was a complicated deal. There were lead negotiators from seven countries. There was a phased implementation timeline. 
And then Secretary Kerry is looking for a lead coordinator, somebody to see the deal through. So he taps you for that job. What was that job like? And what do you think about the Trump administration and the Obama administration and their handling of Iran in terms of what they got right and what they got wrong? Well, I talked earlier about being terrified when I first joined the Foreign Service. So despite all the challenges I had since joining the Foreign Service, I didn't feel terrified again until I took the job as lead coordinator (laughs) on the Iran nuclear deal for a number of reasons. So first of all, as well known, it was an incredibly controversial, highly politicized deal, massive opposition in the Congress to the deal. It was already becoming a prominent, probably the most prominent foreign policy issue in the 2016 election campaign. And all of us foreign service officers are trained to avoid getting involved in anything that's heavily politicized because Mm -hmm. that way lies madness and tears. But (laughs) the Secretary of State asks you to do something, you're trained to say yes, unless you have a pretty good reason not to. And I didn't have a good reason not to. So we hadn't had diplomatic relations with Iran since 1980. We were trained throughout my entire foreign service career at that point do not engage ever with anyone from Iran. Literally, you'd run into an Iranian diplomat at some diplomatic reception overseas. You weren't even allowed to shake hands with them. You'd have to back away and find some way out. And all of a sudden, I'm responsible for having contact with the Iranian deputy foreign minister several times a week about implementation issues that came up. And of course, we don't have an embassy there. We don't have any formal way to communicate. So when I first met him, I was on the job for about two weeks. I went up to meet with the Iranian foreign minister and his team in New York. They were in town for the annual UN General Assembly meeting. And so we said hello and I shook hands with an Iranian, which was a big step. And so I asked my counterpart, so how do we communicate? He said, oh, here's my Yahoo address. Why don't you use this? And (laughs) so sitting down in the department, composing my first message when the first implementation issue came up, and there were lots of them, to sit down and write to an Iranian deputy foreign minister (laughs) from a State Department computer, knowing that there were probably thousands of people in various intelligence agencies who would be scrutinizing every word I wrote was a little daunting. So despite all the challenges, getting yelled at in congressional hearings, being attacked in the press often, and trying to build some kind of trust with representatives of a country with whom we have no trust and only bad experiences. But it was interesting. It was the hardest job I had in my whole time in the Foreign Service. But as is always the case with the hardest jobs, they're the most rewarding as well. You learn the most and develop skills to use for even harder jobs going forward. Any final thoughts or words of wisdom or support that you'd like to deliver to folks that are currently serving out in the field? Well, I would say you got to work hard. (laughs) There's not going to be any shortage of hard work and you have to be ready to do that hard work. You have to be kind. It's a very stressful job to work in the Foreign Service in the State Department. And under stress, one of the first things to go is human kindness and losing Mm -hmm. sight of the human dimension. You can't do that. You won't succeed as a foreign service officer, as a diplomat, if you lose the human dimension. There have been so many things to be depressed about in the State Department over the past few years. But when I look at colleagues like Masha Yovanovitch, George Kent, and others, I was just so proud to see them speaking the truth 
rising above this political fray and just giving their best advice, their most truthful answer to advance the interests of our country. And it was a very difficult moment going through the impeachment process, but to see colleagues I respect and love so well, just continuing to do a great job, made me realize, hey, it's going to be okay. It's going to be a tough time now, but I know that more people are coming to join the Foreign Service in the years ahead, and they will do just great. I encourage more people to sign up and take the test. I'm encouraging my own son to do the same thing, and I look forward to great things going forward. Ambassador Moll, on behalf of all of our listeners, our heartfelt thanks for joining us today. You can find more detail on Ambassador Moll's post-State Department career at the University of Virginia, where Ambassador Moll is Vice Provost for Global Affairs. You can also find a list of Ambassador Moll's publications and engagements at Georgetown University's Institute for the Study of Diplomacy, where Ambassador Moll recently served as a resident senior fellow. Special thanks to the Una Chapman Cox Foundation and the American Academy of Diplomacy for supporting today's program. If you're interested in exploring a career in the Foreign Service, please visit careers.state.gov. To find out more about today's guest or to dig further into the history and practice of U.S. diplomacy, please visit uccoxfoundation.org, adst.org, or 25yearapprenticeship.com. Lastly, please rate and review this podcast so that other folks interested in foreign policy and careers in the Foreign Service can find us. Thanks very much.